You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a new campaign to combat misinformation about COVID-19 and going alcohol-free for a good cause. But we begin with a grim milestone. Earlier this week, we marked the one-year anniversary of the first reported case of COVID-19 in Canada. Since then, there have been more than 700,000 cases across the country, more than 71,000 active cases today, and more than 18,000 deaths. To discuss where we've been and where we go from here is Dr. Catherine Smart, President-elect of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you for joining our show, Dr. Smart. Thank you for having me, Tina. So those numbers are, are shocking, and the battle isn't over yet. Take us back, and I know it's only been a year, but so much has changed and happened since then. What were those early days like for physicians? Almost hard to remember, isn't it, what life was like a year ago. I agree with you. Things are really very different. You know, I think in those early days, um, like many other Canadians as physicians, we were waiting to find out what was this new coronavirus we were hearing about um, you know, at, the, at that point in time, it was clearly an issue in China. We were starting to see cases here in Canada. But I think we were likely optimistic that it was something that was going to be contained. And then I think as the weeks went on, it was very clear that we were entering a global pandemic. Uh, we saw it spreading across Canada. And I think at that point, physicians, you know, really had several concerns. One was understanding this virus, how to diagnose it, how to treat it, how to keep themselves and their patients safe. And there was just a huge um, banding together of physicians on social media, through things like Facebook, through our professional organizations to try to understand this new infectious disease and what we should be doing to care for people. And then, of course, there was a lot of thought about how to keep ourselves and our colleagues safe in our hospital and clinic situations so that we could keep providing medical care to patients and prevent it from spreading in those contexts. Uh, and there was a lot of fear, I think, early on. As, you know, we all remember there was huge shortages of personal protective equipment. No one quite knew how the virus was spreading. There was a lot of debate around social distancing, mandatory masking, et cetera. Um, so I think those early days were really a focus on, you know, information and safety. So you mentioned some of these issues already, but what have we learned since then, since those early days? Well, I think now we have a very clear sense of this virus and how it affects people. Um, You know, it's very clear that it disproportionately impacts older segments of our population in terms of mortality. We know it's highly dangerous in congregate living situations like long-term care facilities that have obviously been decimated by COVID, but other folks living in, in overcrowded situations are also highly at risk. I think what we've also learned is it's like many infectious diseases, it can be unpredictable. You know, this week we've lost someone who was 19 years old in Ontario, which is obviously a tragedy as well. And I think we realize, you know, no one is necessarily safe from this, which is um, a scary thought for sure. I think we've learned that social distancing can be effective, but it's hard to maintain. You know, there's been a lot asked of the population, and when people are maintaining uh, these lockdown precautions, it's not without other costs, and, and those have been difficult to balance out. 
Um, like many things in our society, our vulnerable populations are disproportionately impacted. Racialized populations, people that are underemployed, people working on the front line in low-paid jobs that have little job security, they are bearing the burden of this pandemic more than other Canadians. And, and I don't think we've necessarily found policies yet to really protect those people. And that's a really critical issue. I think the other learning for sure was around masking. You know, initially there was a lot of reluctance around masking, and I think now we've seen that policy adopted across the country, uh, and that's been something I think that's been useful, and that's been a, a perspective we didn't have last year at this time. So I think we've, you know, I, I'd say the other thing about COVID is I think it's really laid bare the issues in our society. You know, it's, it's shown the cracks in the healthcare system that were there before, but are, are more obvious now. But more importantly, I think it's really shown the impact of social determinants of health in a way that people can't turn away from because they're seeing it every day. Uh, and if anything positive can come from this, I hope it's a systems redesign that really makes us ask ourselves these questions about how we want to move forward as a society. As someone in the medical profession, what advice do you have for those in the general public who are maybe feeling COVID fatigue, who have hit the COVID wall? What do you want to say to them? I think the first thing I would say is, I totally hear you. I, I think that's a totally fair way to feel. Uh, there's no question that Canadians have been called upon to behave in ways they've never been asked to behave in before. It's impacted absolutely every single person in our country, from the youngest person. You know, I'm a pediatrician. I have little children coming into my clinic for appointments. And often I think, you know, for some of these kids, they've only ever seen people around them wearing masks. That's a really unusual situation. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have, our, you know, our elderly population who have been isolated from their loved ones uh, now for months and, and just the impact of that as well. I think I would just say, you know, we see you, we hear you, we feel your pain. Uh, there's no question. I think there's just a huge sense of empathy and compassion for what people are going through. Um, and then I think the other side of that message is, you know, Hope is in sight. Vaccines are here. They're coming. I think, you know, not as quickly as any of us would like, um, but they are coming. And in the next few months, I, I think it's reasonable to be optimistic that this can end. But between now and then, obviously, what we want to see is as many Canadians still alive to see the end of this pandemic. And right now, the biggest tools we have to do that is to keep up with the social distancing adherence to public guidelines or public health guidelines based on where you live. Um, and, and it's a big ask, but I think right now that those are the tools in the toolbox and we need to keep using them. Absolutely. Before we get into the vaccine rollout, how do you suggest we contain existing cases and the emergence of a variant? Yeah, you know, the variant question I think is obviously very scary. We've seen that huge outbreak now uh, in the long-term care facility in Ontario with a lot of deaths and, and a huge level of contagiousness. You know, the, the way we contain the variants is the same way we contain the, the other types of coronavirus. Uh, it's through social distancing, staying home when you can, only doing essential things that you need to do, masking when you're in public, really good hand hygiene, uh, rapid case testing, and, and, and isolation of people with symptoms or risk factors. So those basic public health um, interventions are really the way forward for all the types of coronavirus. So now, according to the CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, how should the vaccine rollout proceed? 
Well, I think, you know, we have had some excellent guidance uh, come forward from our national institutes that are looking at this question. I think there's clear strategies that have been described in terms of, you know, um, modeling the impact of different vaccine strategies. And what, what we have now is a national strategy that's prioritizing people in long-term care, frontline healthcare providers, and then older Canadians, as well as people living in remote uh, First Nations communities throughout the country, and then moving from there into immunizing the rest of the country. Um, and I, I think, you know, we all think that makes sense at the CMA. I think the real challenge is just the logistics of this, right? There's been some issues in terms of vaccine supply uh, that we've all been hearing about in the news, and that looks like that's being resolved over the next few weeks, which is encouraging. But what we really need, you know, is that clear communication from the federal government to our provincial and territorial governments around what to expect, the number of doses when they're coming, so that those logistics can be put in place. I think we need that recognition that, you know, our country is particularly complex because we do have what is, you know, a kind of a moderate-sized population, but really spread out geographically over a massive area, some areas which are very challenging to reach, and that poses different challenges than some other countries with maybe a similar-sized population, but in a much smaller geographical area. So the logistics are complicated, and they're going to need all hands on deck, and I think really unprecedented leadership and cooperation between different levels of government to make sure that we can get vaccine into arms. So what we really want to see is that planning, that clear communication, and, and mobilization of all the resources we have uh, to make sure that this happens as quickly as possible. So Dr. Smart, where do we go from here? How do we become better equipped? Well, I think, you know, there's several steps ahead of us. I think one is ongoing communication and collaboration at all levels of government to work together with our health experts to continue to contain community spread and get the vaccines out to people. You know, those are really the two pillars of what is going to end this pandemic. We need a vaccine to be as many people as possible to prevent the spread. But while we're doing that, because realistically that's going to happen over the next six months, we need to continue with public health protocols in our communities to prevent that spread. Um, So I think, you know, when you look at what do you need to make that work, I think we need to consider what are the barriers for people to comply with what's being asked of them. And I think, you know, there's some very real barriers for people in terms of of paid sick leave, access to income, people that are, you know, underemployed or employed in multiple places just to try to keep food on the table or roofs over their head. Those are that people in our population that we really need to be thinking of with policies that can meet their needs, that can allow those people to be able to make some of the choices that are being asked to them by the government. Um, So I'd really like to see the government double down on supports for some of our more vulnerable populations so that some of these public health requests are realistic for all Canadians. So one year in, are you optimistic that perhaps we will have something to celebrate, perhaps by Canada Day? What do you think? I sure hope so. You know, I, I think I think we're going to see, I, I hope, a real impact on hospitalization if we can get our more elderly population vaccinated, and that's obviously a priority over the next few months. Um, so I think that's encouraging. I think we're going to see some natural improvement as the weather improves and, and people are not forced to be inside as much like we saw last summer, so that's in our favour. Um, and what I really hope is that we see the government put forward a very clear expectation to the population about what's expected of them over these next few months in terms of lockdowns so that people can really feel like, okay, this is something I can commit to here over these next few months because I see the light at the end of that tunnel. And I think 
that's where we really need to, to be communicating clearly, making people feel like there's a clear plan with an outcome they can look forward to to get people through these next few months. And I really, like you, hope that by July 1st, we're looking at some different numbers and we have a different sense of optimism for the future. Dr. Catherine Smart, President-Elect of the CMA, thank you for joining us on the feed. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Tina. A coalition of scientists, communicators, and health experts has joined forces to create Science Up First, a nationwide campaign to help Canadians work together against misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccines. Here to share the science behind the headlines and to help us spot misinformation about the coronavirus is Samantha Yamin, PhD, neuroscientist, science communicator, and a member of the Science Up First Coalition. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Sam. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for having me. So why was Science Up First created? Science Up First was created to address the infodemic that we are currently in, as the WHO has called it. Because here in Canada, almost half of Canadians may believe one or more COVID-19-related conspiracy theories, according to a study from Carleton. And in fact, another study out of McGill last summer found social media was a major source of the misperceptions people have about COVID that tends to correlate with poor compliance to things like physical distancing. So we know social media is, we know there is a lot of misinformation. We know a lot of it is on social media. And we know that that information people find online can negatively influence the types of behaviors that, uh, that they'll do when it comes to protecting themselves against COVID. So Science at First was started to directly address that exactly where all the misinformation is, which is online. So how detrimental to our health and our safety can, say, conspiracy theories uh, be uh, misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccines? How detrimental is that? I think it's fair to say at this point that the level of misinformation and the politicization of public health has exacerbated the negative impacts of this pandemic. I think, of course, there are so many players involved, but the misinformation hasn't helped this end any sooner. And when we have an end in sight with the hope of vaccines, which is one of our best tools to end this, we need to make sure that they're being accurately discussed so that people can make the best decision for them. They're empowered with accurate information so that they can make the best decision. And I think for the vast, vast majority, that's gonna be to take the vaccine um, and continue to to physically distance until we can get numbers down enough to get out of this. What kind of misinformation is out there? For instance, is it about the virus itself? Is it about vaccines, about the transmission of COVID-19, or even the government's response to this? And we've seen it all. (laughs) It's been everything. There's people calling it a case-demic saying that, um, you know, it's not real, that numbers are inflated, and and that's just absolutely not true. I wish it were, but it's not. This is indeed a very real situation. People are needlessly dying. This is a preventable condition, and it's only treatable when our hospitals aren't overwhelmed. We're seeing people spread rumors and lies that the vaccine is going to cause infertility, which um, is also unfounded. Uh, It was started by uh, people who posted on an online website, basically the Reddit of virology. They they posted a really half-baked hypothesis that 
at first glance looks true, but when you really dig into it, me as a molecular biologist, I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. But that started a whole slew of rumors and lies all over. Mm. Um, and then other things like the vaccine is going to edit your DNA, which is just not possible. Um, and so I know people are nervous and they want to jump on top of every headline and every post online, but we're asking people to take a second pause and science up first before they share. So walk me through how that works. Let's say I see something online that that makes my heart uh, beat faster and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, nervous about what I've just read, something about COVID-19 and maybe it's about the variant. How do I confirm that the information is true? This is, first, I just want to say, I feel you. I, I get nervous about that. This is a scary situation, and it's natural and great to be curious. That's what science is all about. When you're in that moment, we want you to just take a step back um, and, and just think, who is this coming from? What's the source? And, in fact, we've already done a lot of that vetting, a lot of that background research to save you some of that time. And so now we're saying that you can go to Science Up First on Instagram, um, Twitter, Facebook, and you can check what we've said on the topic, and we'll connect you to further sources. You can ask us questions. We have a whole team of experts who can help to address questions and, importantly, point you to sources that matter. And we'll also be debunking things that are circulating online that aren't true. So we want to be a a starting point for people uh, to, to know that they can trust this information and also, importantly, you can then go share what we've shared so that it spreads further than the misinformation does. The science spreads beyond. So with all due respect, and you know I mean this, mm-hmm. how can we trust science up first? This is the, this is the key. It's on us to be trustworthy, uh, and that's something that we want to earn your trust. You can uh, look online to see who's on the team, but we're an independent group of people who study infectious diseases. We have healthcare practitioners on the front lines treating COVID. There are people like me who are science communicators who are trained in sharing information in an unbiased way. Um, So you can look us up to see who's on the team, Um, but we're completely independent from that perspective of people from across the country, across experiences and backgrounds. Um, And I think you'll notice, you'll learn that you can I think you'll be comfortable trusting us because you'll see that the way we're sharing is not sensationalized. It's about empowering. We're not telling you what to do. We're sharing the information so you can make the best decision. And that's the really key thing. Uh, If people are sensationalizing, overhyping, and telling you what to do, I would be a little wary. To me, that's a red flag. Is this misinformation coming from? What are the sources? I would remind people that it's a really loud minority of people that are the source of what we call disinformation, which is the intentionally uh, untrue information that people start to spread a lie for whatever agenda they may have. So it's a very uh, loud minority of people who kind of start it, but then it gets spread by people who do have great intentions and are just trying to learn and protect their families. And so we're really trying to reach that middle group of people who are just curious and maybe stumbling across the wrong sources. Um, But the source of it is usually someone who has some ulterior motive. Uh, I'm not going to name names because I don't believe in giving them more platform, but (laughs) there are some key sources. You know, they're trying to sell a book. They're trying to to, uh, have some political agenda behind it. And I'll just remind people, like, public health is about getting us out there. Get it, getting us out of this sooner. And if we do our job, you won't even know why we were needed. 
Science Up First was launched earlier this week as we uh, noted the first uh, COVID-19 case uh, in this country. And also we are weeks, a month and a half away from uh, marking the first anniversary of the declaration of the pandemic. Why did the group, why did you choose last week, you know, sort of near the end of, of January to launch Science Up First? What was the timing in this? In part, it has to do with this um, unfortunate anniversary that you mentioned, uh, that it, the, this week it was the mark of, of the, the anniversary of the first COVID case reported in Canada. But beyond that, we know that there's so much work ahead. We tried to get it started as soon as we could, and especially as in a few months we'll see the general population having access to vaccinations. Um, we know that now is a really important time to start engaging people in conversations about this big decision that they're going to have to make. I have a quote from Timothy Caulfield, Canadian Research Chair in Health, Law and Policy at the University of Alberta. Quote, misinformation is a dire imminent threat to the lives of all Canadians and is proven to be one of the factors fueling COVID-19 infections and dissuading people from getting vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? Timothy is one of our leaders, uh, one of the leaders of Science of First, and uh, I absolutely agree. Misinformation is a threat to human health. Uh, anything that's going to undermine uh, public health right now is, is going to lead to more deaths. This is something that we will only get out of together. And so at the very least, we need to start on the same foundation of understanding so that um, together all of our actions make a difference. Uh, and misinformation tries to separate us, right, and, and makes us question, and, and it really leads us making unsafe decisions. So we're only going to get this out of this together. We're only going to minimize deaths on the same team, and science is there to help us make better decisions and make the evidence-based decisions so that we can protect ourselves and our family. Sam, where can people go to find out more about Science Up First? You can find us at Science Up First on your favorite social media platform, scienceupfirst.com as well, and lacientsdabord.com uh, if you want to access it in French. Hmm. Samantha Yamin, Science Sam is how you're known in many circles, a PhD, neuroscientist, <laughs> science communicator, and a proud member of the Science Up First Coalition. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. Put a cork in it. Coming up next, details on the Dry Feb campaign. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I don't know about you, but I have been drinking a little more than I used to during this pandemic. A glass of wine here and there is now one every night and two on Saturdays. The Canadian Cancer Society wants us, you, me, and everyone else who might be imbibing a little too much to dry out next month. Here to explain is Tracy Tang, Senior Manager, Campaigns, Online Programs, and Partnerships with the Canadian Cancer Society. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Hi, Anne. Thank you for having me. Now, I normally would have said cheers to you, but maybe that's inappropriate at this point. We're talking about reasons why you want Canadians to think about drying out 
and enjoying dry February without having alcohol. So what's the purpose of dry Feb? Right, that's a great question. And, and we can always cheers with a non-alcoholic drink, you know, or some um, water or juice. <laughs> so dry Feb is a national fundraiser that challenges Canadians to go alcohol-free for the month of February while raising funds for the Canadian Cancer Society. Um, we know that you can get healthy while also raising funds for important costs. We know that two out of ten Canadians drink alcohol daily, and uh, only one-third of Canadians are aware that there's a link between alcohol consumption and the increased risk of cancer. So drinking any type of alcohol increases your risk of head, neck, breast, stomach, pancreatic, colorectal, and liver cancers. Uh, so now more than ever, uh, the Canadian Cancer Society uh, is asking for uh, Canadians to support and rally together, make healthier choices, and also help us to raise funds for uh, important causes. Those are pretty shocking bits of information that you've just given us about the kinds of cancer that alcohol consumption can lead to. Why does that happen? Why does alcohol make a direct beeline to parts of the body, and why does it cause cancer? Right, that's a great question, and. And I think um, a lot of the times it has to do with the amount of alcohol you drink over a period of time. Um, so the Canadian Cancer Society recommends uh, one drink per day, um, and uh, that is one bottle of beer, one glass of wine, or one shot of spirits. But if you drink more than, more than one drink per day, uh, it could increase your risk of cancer over time. Talk to me about the stats that you're seeing in terms of the pandemic and what people have been, what their habits have been since March 2020 when the pandemic was officially declared. Right. Uh, so we've done a survey to uh, ask Canadians across the country on their uh, drinking habits um, since March 2020, uh, since the pandemic started. And uh, we've learned that almost half Canadians, so 43 of 43% of Canadians drink alcoholic beverages a few times a week, while about 49% uh, Canadians drink beer weekly, and about 25% drink three or more glasses of wine per week. Um, and, uh, and we also learned that three in 10 Canadians intend to drink less in 2021. So that's another great reason why we want to help promote the Dry Fed program, uh, because of those that have participated in a challenge like Dry Fed in the past, 95% of participants actually experience positive benefits, such as feeling healthier and energized, improving physical health, and sleeping better. So I think that's a great reason to give Dry Feb a try. Why do you think people started drinking more during the pandemic? We're still in it, and we're still drinking. Why do you think that has led to increased alcohol intake? Well, I mean, and um, I think we can all attest to this. Um, it has been a very challenging year since the pandemic started um, in March 2020. Uh, and I think we all are cooped up at home. We probably all need some outlets one, one way or another. You know, some people choose alcohol. Some people eat more cakes. Some people drink more, uh, you know, coffee or anything. So I think uh, there are just different ways that we want to adopt to help us cope uh, during those challenging times. And alcohol is, uh, you know, from our survey has proved that uh, that is uh, probably half of the Canadians have uh, chosen. So, you know, personally, uh, I eat a lot of sweets uh, during the pandemic, and I find it challenging to, to keep up with my workouts when I'm at home. 
Um, so, you know, it affects every one of us uh, in a different way. <laughs> it's great because you and I are confessing to all of our, our guilty pleasures <laughs> on the feed right now. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> Tracy, let me ask you this. How difficult is it for people to give up alcohol for a week, for two weeks, three weeks, or for the month of February? This is the sixth year for Dry Feb. Has it been successful in the past? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's challenging. It depends on the uh, amount of alcohol intake or part of it, like how much of it is part of your lifestyle. Uh, we have some mocktail recipes available on the website, dressup.ca. And also, um, uh, and, and also, we have a lots of tips uh, in our health uh, and wellness section on the website to encourage people to adopt healthier habits. For example, uh, you know, uh, exercise regularly, uh, eat well, uh, eat more fruits and vegetables uh, into your diet, and get moving. Uh, and then tips to help you to sit less. So all of the things that people can do to help them uh, to adopt perhaps a new habit during the Dry Fab Challenge, uh, and also to help them realize that, uh, you know, there are other outlets you can try to help you to cope uh, with uh, what you may normally turn to alcohol for. So uh, we want to make this program fun and uh, welcoming for most Canadians that are participating. So there's lots of great tools that are available on the drysub.ca website. So in other words, get healthy and raise money. So how do we raise money if we do not purchase and uh, and drink alcohol for the month of February? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so uh, any participant that want to help support Drysub can sign up at the website, drysub.ca. It's a very uh, easy process to sign up, and after you sign up, there's a wide range of tools that are available to help with participants with their fundraising efforts. Uh, we have pre-written emails, uh, social media templates, and images. Um, you know, like during the pandemic, we have adopted new virtual backgrounds, uh, email signatures to help people to spread the word uh, with their family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, I know that we probably can't see a lot of our colleagues these days uh, from working remotely, but you can help spread the word virtually and sending emails and uh, messages to uh, those that are in your network uh, is very effective uh, because we find that a lot of the uh, supporters support participants for DriveFed because of their personal connection and also because of their commitment to help Canadians affected by cancer. Uh, we have heard many, many great stories through our campaign the past few years about how each participant is personally impacted by cancer, uh, either themselves or families. Uh, so we we are so grateful for all the support that we're receiving from the Canadians that are participating. So is it as simple as this? Let's say two in five Canadians spent at least $50 a month on alcohol. These are your financial statistics. Uh, one in five spent over $100. Let's say I spent $100 a month on alcohol. That's a lot. Uh, your hope is that rather than going out and purchasing alcohol through the month of February, that I would donate the equivalent to the Canadian Cancer Society. Right. Yeah, that's the hope. And we do have an alcohol calculator to help uh, Canadians understand how much money they could be saving from spending uh, from not drinking alcohol during the month of February. Um, and um, if everyone can raise $100 towards the cancer cost, that will add up to a very big impact towards our research support programs and other things that can benefit Canadians affected by cancer. 
so I think that's a great goal if they're participating for the first time. And uh, also, uh, why not try try to go dry for for a period of time to try it out? 28 days in February, going alcohol-free, all for a good cause. Dry Feb, thank you so much, Tracy Tang from the Canadian Cancer Society. Thank you so much, Anne. Extreme cold temperatures in the region this weekend, but there is hope behind Blue Door. Afwa Ba with that story. Blue Door is an organization well known across York region for helping hundreds, if not thousands of people who have at one point or another have had to deal with homelessness, whether they might be a youth or an adult that has just run on some bad luck and needs an extra helping hand. So joining me today to talk about Blue Door, what they do and about On the Way Home. Not going to reveal what that is just yet. I have the perfect man here that will help explain it all. CEO of Blue Door, Michael Braithwaite. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, always appreciate uh, what 1059 The Region does for our community and uh, sharing information. So glad to be here. Thank you so much. And we appreciate you. And, you know, we want to shed some light, of course, on Blue Door. I know about Blue Door. I don't know a lot about Blue Door, but let me just play devil's advocate for those that may not know about uh, this organization. What is Blue Door about? No, well, listen, in, in my line of work, awareness is uh, a lot of the battle, more than half the battle. So Blue Door is an agency. We've been around for about 38 years. And what we really do for adults, for families, and for youth across all nine municipalities in New York region is we try and rapidly rehouse people, people experiencing homelessness, whether it's short-term or longer-term. Uh, we work with them to rehouse them, and we support them once they're housed. We help them with employment opportunities that are program like Construct, and we link them to uh, health care as well. So we try and link them to family doctors and other medical professionals that could support them in their journey. So an organization basically filling in the gaps at all places possible. You know, it's not even necessarily just trying to find a roof over your head, but making sure that they have the avenues to be able to feed themselves, to be able to house themselves and make a living for themselves. Talk to me about the changes that you've seen in, in people over the years that, you, that has maybe come through the doors of Blue Door and have come out on the other side better because they were able to get a helping hand. Well, I think sometimes people have, uh, there's a stigma that follows uh, homelessness, but the reality is 80% of people that come through the doors of whether it be Blue Door or Yellow Brick House or 360 Kids, 80% of people, it's a one-time deal. They've, uh, something's happened in their life, so they're experiencing homelessness, but they, they are able to be rehoused and move on with their lives. Uh, and we even see them again. And then there's 20% that are experiencing something called chronic homelessness, which is a little longer which uh, the supports we need to wrap around them are uh, a little more in-depth as well. So I think, you know, over the years, you you see people, they come in, you don't see them again, but then sometimes you'll see they're doing great things or they're giving back because they know what it was like. Uh, Or even years and years later, they have children who are friends who are experiencing homelessness, and they've got a soft spot and support and give back, whether they donate or they volunteer their time. So you mentioned awareness and basically finding different avenues to help the community know uh, about Blue Door and the services that they provide. So with awareness in the context of communication, a relaunch of On the Way Home. What is that? Yeah, so just a little, about a year and a half ago, uh, we started a podcast called Out of the Blue. 
and it was uh, it really was to raise awareness around all issues, the challenges and the successes um, around homelessness across the world, Canada, the world, York region, um, and we had great success. So a weekly show every Thursday where we had the best and the brightest uh, in areas of health, homelessness, employment, people we call live experts who have actually experienced homelessness and now are sharing their, their paths and their, their journeys with others. Um, and we really, really said no. We've had people from Finland, uh, from Norway, from the U.S., and, of course, some brilliant people from across, all across Canada. And now what's happened is our friends at the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness, which is a national organization, they came and said, hey, hey Blue Door, uh, we love Out of the Blue. We were going to do our own podcast on a national level. We, we don't want to duplicate what you're doing. Would you consider working together? So we said, of course, the whole idea is to get this out to as many people as possible. They have, uh, they have thousands and thousands of members and, and uh, people that follow them. Um, so we thought, what a better way to, to do that. So now we're rebranding out of the blue. We'll become on the way home, and we'll add a host, uh, Stefania uh, from uh, the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness, so which will add another perspective to the show. So we're really, really pumped, uh, and our, our, the, the types of guests and our reach will really expand as well. So really excited about this relaunch. And I'm excited to hear about this as well, too. Of course, this is going to be airing on Discovery, the uh, radio show for podcasters here in the region in the near future. I'm curious to know about the name change. What inspired it? Well, you know, Out of the Blue really speaks to Blue Doors specifically, where um, and we, we thought, hey, we need something that if someone, someone reads this, there's, there's a link to home. And it all comes back to that. When you ask those people, hey, if you could give me a one-word uh, answer to any homelessness, what is it? And it's, it's home, right? It, or housing. Um, so that's really, we thought, let, let's, you know, and here, it's a, there's a double meaning to it, too. When you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're on your way home and there's, there's thousands of people in Canada that don't have that luxury because um, they're the home to go to, right? So, hence, kind of the, the change around the name to link it more to the brand and give us a fresh start with our new partner. I love the double meaning in that. I absolutely love it. Okay, I'm going to pivot a little bit. And, of course, we have all been dealing with, in one way or another, our experiences, though, vary. This pandemic, it's now over a year that we've been living with, quote-unquote, COVID-19. How has Blue Door pivoted and, and been able to provide services in the midst of this pandemic? Well, it all, after it all comes down to team and beyond Blue Door's team, which are an amazing group of frontline workers. I mean, they're, they're so careful and they, they work with public health, who's been incredible, and they listen to all the recommendations. Uh, Safety is our number one priority. Um, so we, and our clients have been amazing too. They want to work with us. They want to stay healthy. So they're listening. They're washing their hands. They're following protocols, wearing masks. Blue Door Ahead of it being mandatory, got everyone to wear masks. We said, why not? I mean, it hadn't been a, a mandatory thing yet. It just made sense. So we've always done that. Our partners at the region of York have been incredible. The United Way uh, and all, all, our, all the agencies are working together to balance it off. So Salvation Army, 360 Kids, Yellow Brick House, Sandgate, Out of the Cold, In from the Cold, Loft. Uh, the the uh, Canadian Mental Health Association, and I'm sure I'm missing others. We work together, not against each other or in competition, to keep all of our most vulnerable safe. So it's just an incredible effort. And I have to say, although we've had some outbreaks here and there in the sector, it really hasn't been as, as tough as, or I shouldn't say as tough, it's been very tough, but the outbreaks 
have not uh, been as high as we would have thought at the beginning, and that's because of those heroes on the front lines doing that incredible work. Absolutely, and we thank them for their tireless work that they continue to provide uh, for those who are the most vulnerable at this time. Now, I want to talk about one of the popular events that uh, is done every year, coldest night of the year specifically. Uh, but that's going to be a little bit different, of course, because of this pandemic. If you can talk to me a little bit about that. Well, Cold Night of the Year is a really cool event put on. It's the, the parent company, Lucy Philanthropy. And what they do is across Canada, uh, agencies that can say, hey, we want to take part. And on one given night, uh, February 20th this year, usually you get together at a destination and do a 5K walk all together and you raise funds through pledge, online pledging to do that. Well, this year, of course, we don't want to bring people together. We want to be safe. So what we're saying to people is you're going to do a virtual walk. What that doesn't mean is that doesn't mean you do it on your computer, but it means we all do it individually. So you know what? In a time where we're, we're looking for stuff to do, we're looking to get help and get outside, get some air, you on your own or with your family and your, your bubble, Go out, do a 5K walk, build a team, or join one of the teams that's already on there. We're the, we're, we've actually partnered with uh, Out of the Coal um, in Richmond Hill. They're awesome. We're working together. So instead of doing two walks, we're doing one big virtual walk with a goal of 80,000. We're already uh, more than 50% of the way there. But, but between now and, and February 20th, go out, do that 5K walk, take pictures, video, share them. And the day of the event, we're just going to do an hour kind of fun ceremony and, and have different speakers to thank everyone and talk about our success and where the money's going to go, that kind of thing. So, I mean, this shows how strong this York Region community is because in times of uh, challenge like we are in now with an event, uh, they're still making it work for, for our most vulnerable. And then on that note, first off, how do we get residents to help? How do we get them to sign up for this virtual event? That's the first part. Second part is, where can residents get more information about Blue Door, about the rebranding of On the Way Home, the podcast? Everything that entails or embodies Blue Door. Yeah, uh, great great question. So Blue Door in general, go to bluedoor.ca. You can find out about On the Way Home, formerly Out of the Blue, uh, and all the information there. You'll be able to listen to On the Way Home everywhere where you got podcasts. It will be there, and, and we encourage people to subscribe for the coldest night of the year walk. Go to uh, uh, cnoy.org and, and look for Richmond Hill. Just look up uh, locations, Richmond Hill or Blue Door, and you can either join one of the existing teams or make your own um, and join in on the fun and be a part of the solution. Perfect. All right. CEO of uh, Blue Door, Michael Braithwaite. Michael, thank you again for your time today. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for uh, you and your team and all of the work that you're doing in the community. We appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. After the break, the hopes and dreams of young hockey players. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the feed, young and elite hockey players find their futures on hold because of the pandemic. Jim Lang with Dashed Dreams. Well, as we come up to the one-year anniversary of the uh, full-on lockdown in Ontario and the new normal, quote-unquote, things are very different for all of us, especially with hockey in Ontario. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by the coach and GM of the Ontario Hockey League's Kitchener Rangers, Mike McKenzie. Mike, how are you? 
Good, Jim. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Well, good. It's I, I mean, I, I think about people like you, um, the kids from York Region who go through at the OHL, kids from all over the province uh, who usually are in the depths of getting more to where this time of year, really in the serious playoff push. It's so weird not to see the OHL in action and keep a look at the stats and everything going on. Yeah, it's really strange, and it's it's one of those things when, you know, all this kind of came down the pipe, and I think everyone kind of remembers where they were, um, you know, that night or that morning when everything seemed to be getting shut down, whether it was the NHL or NBA or sports or just society in general. We probably didn't look ahead and think, you know what, we're going to be coming up on February 2021, and, and we're still not going to be playing hockey and not back to – uh, normal life even so it's it's definitely weird we we would usually be right in the middle of a of a season right now and right in the thick of things and going to practice and doing workouts and going on the road and on the bus and games and feeling the highs and lows and kind of roller coaster of a hockey season and uh, I know I miss it and I know the players miss it and it's it's most upsetting for them really is that you know kids that age and kids in any sport really right now are, are missing out on on sports and the social aspect of sports the health aspect of sports so it's definitely disappointing um, from that standpoint but from your role and any coach at that level becomes a surrogate parent when you're spending that much time with teenage boys you're as you say in the dressing room on the bus when you see them and hear them you can get a sense whether or not something's right or something's wrong how do you do that virtually mike it's very difficult. It really is. It's, uh, you know, everyone talks a lot about how, you know, this is going to change the way the world works. And, you know, so many offices are going to be, you know, stay at home office instead of going into real offices and doing things on Zoom and virtually as opposed to having, you know, in-person meetings. And I think that's all well and good. But I, I think, like you said, there's not that, there really isn't that full replacement to, you know, being face-to-face with someone and really seeing how they are, how their body language is, making that connection um, face-to-face. Um, so it, it is difficult. We have done Zoom calls and virtual stuff with them, but it's it's just not the same when you have guys on a call and you're, you're through a screen and you're not sure whose, you know, turn it is to talk and computers freezing up and internet connections and all that fun stuff that you, you have to deal with. So... It's obviously the best we've got right now, so we're definitely uh, taking advantage of it any way we can, but it's just not the same, and and our message to the players has has been primarily, you know, that to continue trying to develop as as hockey players and, and the sport, but also if there's anything we can do to help at our end in terms of their development or even mental health or you know, whatever it may be, because it's such a unique time that, you know, we were here to support them and we can try to get them whatever they need at this time. So it's not perfect, but we're still doing our best. Speaking of the Mike McKenzie, the coach and general manager of the OHL's Kitchener Rangers, and I mean, athletes at that level, that age, it doesn't take a lot for them to stay in shape, I don't think, Mike, when it comes to working out. I mean, they gain muscle overnight sometimes, but uh, you alluded to it. How, what kind of, I guess, roles and devices and different things are in place for you with the OHL, with the Kitchener Rangers, with Hockey in general, with Hockey Canada to keep these kids mentally strong when it has to be stressful for them? Yeah, you're right. There's there's definitely that one side of it is the physical side. And, and like you said, they're all young guys and, and, you know, they're in pretty good shape to begin with. And 
um, our message to them on that front has been, you know, it's actually a really good opportunity. Um, you can't showcase your abilities right now, but you can definitely still find ways to improve on your abilities um, with all the extended time off, and it really acts as, as like a like a really extended off season, I guess, from a physical standpoint. And I, I think a lot of guys, especially the younger players that are still developing, growing into their body, can take advantage of that. But um, like you said, the mental side is a whole other animal, and that's the uh, the side that. I definitely worry about, and I know our staff definitely worries about, and as a parent, I think a lot of parents can relate to that and worry about their son or daughter um, going through this right now and and how it's affecting them mentally because it's definitely not good. There isn't an outlet for them um, in terms of playing a sport or social activities, and it's just not healthy. So um, we do have a lot of resources that we can use um, for our players, if, if they're looking for it, um, anywhere from the, you know the league does a really good job in partnering with with uh, uh, groups like the Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, you know, so so outlets like that are available from more of a mental health side of things. Um, but there's also other things that we've put in place. Um, you know, different programs and different people from also a performance side and more of like a sport performance side, whether it's sports psychologists or uh, we have uh, just started a program called our alumni mentorship program where we have two younger alumni members that are kind of there as support system for our players to lean on. So um, we've we've partnered with a, a resiliency training group that focuses really on being resilient in the mind um, as well as, as the body. So there's a lot of different things there from from the mental health side, but also the, the sport performance side. I think about the players who are right at the very end of their OHL career, same thing with elite high school athletes in the province who are about to finish high school and maybe go on to youth sports or NCAA. This is where I find it. I, I think about my friends with their kids. and They are so frustrated because... How do they get scouted by OHL teams from AAA? How do they get scouted by U Sports and NCAA teams from high school when you can't play anything? Yeah, that's the tough one, and and it's uh, you know it's it's tough for them to wrap their head around that. I think the only uh, I wouldn't call it a positive, but the only thing you can look at is everyone's kind of in the same boat right now in terms of you know what you can and can't do. So it's uh, a pretty level playing field in that sense. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just the word closure comes to mind. It's, you know, going through junior hockey. And, and last year was the same thing when our season was cut short and we found out that we wouldn't be continuing on and we wouldn't have a playoffs. And there's just no closure for those players, like overage players or 19-year-olds that have played in the league for three or four or five years even. And you usually get to, you know, get to go to that last game, whether, you know, you always want to win your last game, but most seasons you don't win your last game, but go through that process of, you know, going through playoffs, winning or losing, you know, wrapping up the season, you know, shaking your coach's hand, hugging your teammates, you know, finishing off everything, kind of putting a bow on it and moving on. And, you know, I think that's tough for, for people, especially young kids. And, and now we're kind of in that same situation again this year, believe it or not. And I think there's just not a lot of closure on, on, on kids right now or they're not getting closure on on their careers or 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 sporting careers which is kind of disappointing 
I, I think about the, the, the just the natural rhythms of an athlete through the hockey season, whatever sport they're playing. You go to school, you go home, you practice, you play, and that sort of sets your days and your weeks throughout the winter. And I, I know it's what happens for the players, but for you, Mike, in your role, it must be so weird not to have that daily routine of with the players at home and practicing and playing games. It's definitely different. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not so such a big deal when it's a couple weeks and you can kind of jump back into things right away, but we've been off for so long now that it's, it's, uh, you know, you, you almost have adapted to, to doing it this way and you feel like it's going to be like this forever, even though it's, it's obviously not, and we're going to get back to a more regular routine at some point. But I think the biggest thing, not just for myself, but for the players and, and everyone involved is trying to, to keep the habits in place and trying to maintain some form of routine, even though it's not, you know, that the complete normal routine we would be going through at this time of the year and, and not allowing kind of bad habits to creep in and really, you know, let those bad habits, you know, linger for, for a while. And that can be really difficult at a time where there's not a lot of routine. There's, there's uh, it's really easy for those habits to kind of creep in. So I think that's the biggest thing is just trying to find routine wherever you can and, and make it as normal as possible right now. And then hopefully we can get back to our real routine at some point. Final question, Mike, I know what the world juniors, I thought the quality of play was excellent. What do you anticipate the quality of play to be in the OHL when it finally gets back to hockey? Well, I think it's going to definitely be a little bit, you know, rusty, I guess you could say for the first little bit. Most of these guys have, haven't played any game action. Uh, in quite some time and, and haven't been on the ice every single day like you would typically see practicing every day um, and, and doing that type of work in, the, in those type of routines. But uh, I said before, they're young kids. They, they get back to things pretty quickly. So I don't anticipate if we do have a chance to start back up, I don't anticipate it taking long for the players to kind of get back into the swing of things. And and, uh, you know, that'll be our job as, as coaches and the staff, too, to make sure that we're not jumping back too quickly uh, and, and putting them in a position where we're using them back in and not just going from, you know, zero to 100 right away. And, you know, that's how injuries, you know, happen and, and things like that. So uh, we'll make sure we're doing our part on that side of it if, if and when we do start up. Uh, but they're, they're young guys, and I'm sure they're chomping at the bit to get back. And, uh, it won't take long to kind of uh, reach their their full level of play, I think. Excellent, Mike. Thank you so much for your insight. And uh, fingers crossed you guys get back to doing what you do so well shortly. We greatly appreciate taking the time to talk about it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Jim. So if you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.